I'd, I'd like you to imagine a family, a big family, extended family on a journey. This is the Smith family and here they are in their bus and they're pretty excited. Uh, for generations they've lived in poverty but not anymore for they're on their way to receive an inheritance. They're excited because their inheritance is a ginormous fertile property the size of a small European country with a secured income in the distant parts of WA on the ocean. And it was theirs for the taking. Theirs entirely. Just as soon as they got there. So here they are, excitedly travelling along, wheels on the bus go round and round. Not long now, kids. Not long now, and our lives will change forever. Oh, how much we might envy the Smith family. All of a sudden, riches will be theirs. But then, trouble hit. Just before they arrived, in the final kilometre, no less, their dear old bus broke down. They called the West Australian equivalent of the NRMA, who came out, and there was no help to be found. And they had no insurance. It was an absolute disaster. Their dear old bus was unfixable. And then the strangest thing happened. Rather than grabbing their bags and walking the rest of the journey, their final kilometre, take up their inheritance, they forgot all about their journey. And they stayed with their bus to mourn for it. Unable to leave it, they set up house there. And there they remain, grieving to this day. Our bus is broken. Our bus is broken. Our bus. And it's all they can think about. They've entirely forgotten about who they are and where they were going and what was waiting for them when they arrived. They got stuck in the present, a victim to their trials. And now their journey, their identity, their inheritance, totally forgotten. You ever met someone like that? That's a mythical family, sure enough. But it's a standard problem, isn't it? Tragically, the Smith family alone aren't the only ones who make this mistake. Christian after Christian falls into the same temptation. In fact, even whole churches can be derailed by forgetting our identity, by forgetting our journey, forgetting who we are and forgetting what journey we're on. I know I struggle with this error from time to time and I've met many Christians who do also, single Christians, married Christians, old ones, young ones, especially those with children and grandchildren where so much is going on in the moment. It's just so easy to get caught up living entirely for this moment and for our current experience and what's going on and living for this body that we're currently inhabiting and And we get caught up and then we forget who we are, we forget where we're going and we forget what's waiting for us. Christians, this happens so often. Now thankfully our God is not ignorant of this problem, at this struggle that we have, this mistake. And in his mercy for us, he has given us this wonderful letter of 1 Peter through the Apostle Peter to kickstart us again on our journey. This straight-talking letter reminds us of who we are, of where we're going, and it gives us even great joy for the rest of the journey. If only we'll take the time to listen. If only we'll take to heart what it has to say. So you ready to listen? Well, then let's pray again and ask God's help. Oh, our Father, we thank you that you're our God, 
who speaks straight and clear and true to us in our circumstances. Would you give us ears to hear, hearts ready to understand? Would you give us the kickstart we need if indeed we've lost our way, stuck in the moment, stuck in our pain, stuck in our fears, stuck in our ambitions? Would the meditations of our hearts, the words of my mouth tonight, be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock, our redeemer? Amen. Radio, this letter, it begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter. Now, we, we first met Peter back in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Back there, he was a fisherman, chosen to be one of Jesus' disciples. And along with Paul and the others, Jesus appointed Peter to be an apostle. An apostle, one who has authority to take the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord and to carry that good news to the ends of the earth. And what a Christ-appointed apostle says to us in the New Testament, we Christians today receive this as the authoritative word of God for us to listen to. And not just us here at Bulleye Anglican, no, this is written to all of God's elect all who are exiles in the world. Now, back when Peter wrote, the elect exiles were scattered throughout this particular region of the world. So here we have them in the northern Mediterranean here. What have we got? Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. You and I would know that today as modern day Turkey. Yeah. 2,000 years later, today... Well, the elect exiles are scattered throughout the whole world, even here, as far away as that as northern Illawarra could possibly be. But hang on a moment. Those are strange terms to use, aren't they, to describe a Christian? On my passport, it says very clearly, I'm an Australian currently residing in Winoona. And at Australian Border Control this time last week, well, that's all our worldly authorities wanted to know. It's all they're interested in. But this says, this, this passage says, I'm also one of God's elect, an exile in the world, an exile here, a foreigner here, just passing through. Sure, I live in a house in Winoona, but as a Christian, I'm an exile here. This world is not my home. And yes, I was born into the Williamson family, but God has chosen me to be on his team, to, to be in his family. Therefore, alongside every other follower of Jesus, I don't belong here. I don't belong. And if you're a Christian here tonight, you don't belong here either. An exile is not a local. This world is not our home. The northern Illawarra, sure, it's a nice place to live for a period of time, for a few years, but, but this world is not our home. And it's not our home because of our identity as God's elect. We just don't fit. And more and more we're noticing, of course, that we just don't fit in. And our local community and our wider Australian community is making it very clear that we're less and less welcome here. And that happens, of course, because locals anchor themselves in their present. Anchor themselves in their present experience and ignore everything else. And locked in the present, 
locked in the present of how they feel and what they're experiencing today, well, they do see Christians as different, and they're right. We are different. And that makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? We want to feel like a local, but we don't, and we aren't. And being uncomfortable, as much as that's uncomfortable, but being God's elect is the most incredible privilege that we could possibly have. Just think of it for a moment. What a privilege it is to be selected for God's team. What a privilege to be selected for His team. We make a big deal of, you know, the kangaroos playing in the World Cup and other teams playing, you know, big deal to be selected. We're being selected for God's team. The creator of the world chose us for Himself, for His family. And the strange thing about our selection, of course, is that we don't earn it. And nor do we merit it. Rather, it happens, it happens so much identically to well, the way each one of us was born. Our birth as a human being. So just of us, none of us chose when to be born or to whom to be born by or where and whatever that would happen. No, our parents made all those choices entirely for us, without, us in the room, without consulting us. How dare they? But they did. We had no say in it, no say in it at all, as the birthday song goes. We had no power to influence their choosing to conceive us. It wasn't within our power, and it happened before we existed. Well, likewise, God's elect are God's elect through nothing, nothing that they contribute. Check it out there, verse 2. Do you see it there? Notice the first sentence. It's continuing on from verse 1. The elect have, who have been chosen... According to what? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Do you see anything in there that talks about our desire or our influence or our options, choices or qualification to be the elect? There's nothing there at all, is there? It can't be earned and it can't be edited by any of us. Our identity as God's elect is an unreturnable, unearnable gift. Unearned, unreturnable gift. And it comes to us from all three persons of the Trinity working together. God the Father, who chose us back in eternity before humans even walked the earth. And his choice then enacted in time, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, sanctifies, setting us aside, making us holy, cleansing us, purifying us, preparing us, opening our eyes to be alert to the fact that we are God's people in time so that we would be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. That, that whole blood sprinkling here, that relates to our being purchased by Jesus' blood and it also indicates the continual cleansing of our sins by his blood all along the journey home. Jesus' blood shed once for all on the cross for the elect and his blood is always sufficient to cover our ongoing sin. And that secures our identity. It secures it entirely. How good is that? And it's a gift that he's given to you. 
Doesn't that make you feel important? Doesn't that give you security? It ought to. Does it give you reason to rejoice? It certainly should. Christians, this is our identity before God. This is our identity anchored in God's purposes, past, present, future. And it's the gift that keeps on giving. As it says here, verse 2, we receive grace and peace in abundance all along the way home. So sure, we're currently exiles in Australia. Yes, we are. But we're not exiles to God. God who made the world. Oh, let that anchor your hearts. Exiles in the world, but not exiles to God who made the world. His. That's an identity that can't be changed, shifted, fixed, adjusted. And it's ours entirely. It's worth cherishing an eternal, unchanging identity to live out with confidence for all eternity. I am God's elect, an exile in the world. Is that you? Are you a Christian? I am God's elect, an exile in the world. Now, if that's you, if that applies to you, then how about you say it with me right now? Let, let's, let's get this rolling around our tongues here. Let's get used to saying this. What are we? I am God's elect, an exile in the world. Let that roll over you. Remember this. Get a good taste for it. Because grace and peace in abundance is yours because of it. Now, this is how Peter starts this letter. And the implications of these first two verses are going to play out for the remainder of the letter that we're going to see in the coming eight weeks. Now, for us now tonight, let's just see how this plays out right up to verse 13. Let's just go as far as there, because there are three wonderful implications here in what Mel read out for us about our identity. Three implications of our identity. The first one, our inheritance. The second, our present experience. And the third one, our privileged position. That's what we're going to look at. Our inheritance, our present experience, and our privileged position that flow out from this identity. Verses 3 to 5, they kick us off with the first one here. Speaking about our inheritance secured by our identity as the elect of God. Because it gives us something. This secured inheritance gives us something. It supplies here a living hope. A living hope which can keep us going in every circumstance. In every circumstance. And the praise for this, for this security of our inheritance, well, it's not us and it's not another human, no. Praise for it goes to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because it's by his mercy, we're told here, that we were born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it's him who keeps our inheritance secure in our heavenly home. And we're told here again, it's by his power that we're shielded by faith so that we might make it to the last time when our inheritance is revealed. And what is this blessed inheritance? This living that gives us this living hope, that supplies a living hope, that keeps us the elect going and growing through every circumstance. Well, there's no billionaire property in WA that could be here and gone tomorrow, or any other worldly possession or experience that people desire. No, it's none of those things. This glorious inheritance, 
It's our salvation, of course. Our salvation. And so whether rich or poor, whether healthy or sick, whether popular or unpopular, in worldly terms, if, if you're one of God's elect, you inherit salvation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's yours. You've been born again spiritually now, and you have a living hope, a living hope that you will receive a resurrection body at Christ's return. And this is the great inheritance of your salvation. It doesn't just save us, it gives us a whole new body at his return. And it's salvation that's by faith now, because we don't have those bodies yet, do we? It's by faith now, but by then it will be by sight, when all is revealed in physical form. And so Peter here speaks of it as a living hope. Living because it's founded on Jesus' own resurrection. His resurrection life. It's a living hope based upon him. And it's a hope because we've not yet received it in full. We're like the Smith family, promised an inheritance, knowing it's ours and it's secure, but also knowing that we won't receive it until our journey's end. And this this waiting that we are in, this waiting for our inheritance, this is the great now but not yet tension of our salvation as something that we've got it by a pledge but it's not yet arrived now something that's so far away as you know jesus return well that seems worthless of course to people who are not christians what's the point of that you don't get it now and even we christians can sometimes get stuck in the present and forget to value it or let it influence it in the present. But friends, we must. Because this is our only possession that has eternal value. Everything else we love in this world, it just will not last. It won't, it can't, it doesn't. No matter how flash or beautiful the possession now, it will perish, it will fade, it will sag and crinkle over time. No matter how delightful the lifestyle now, it will be spoiled by your sin or the sin of others combination of both but the inheritance of our salvation kept in heaven for us will never perish spoil or fade it's incorruptible just as you and i will be incorruptible once jesus returns and until that time until that time through faith in him The elect are kept by God's power to ensure they make it to that day. Kept by his power, not ours, to ensure we make it. Isn't this great? It's a beautiful thing. And the Apostle Peter can't help himself. He he praises God for this merciful gift. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Words of praise on your lips for this. Praise for your salvation inheritance. Certainly we should be thankful, you know, each night for the daily mercies of health and happy days and whatever else is good is going on. But are our praises just limited and limited only to those momentary pleasures that are here today and gone tomorrow? Well, friends, let's be those who praise God. Yes, for the things of this moment, 
but more and more and more for our eternal inheritance and not just for our temporary blessings. And yet I wonder, I wonder if we struggle to do that. I wonder if we struggle to praise God for our salvation because of our present experience, because of our current problems, because of all the difficulties and because of all the things that are going on. Is that you? Verse 6 to 9 speak here of this. They speak of our grief in all kinds of trials. Yes, there's grief for the Christian. There's grief in our life, grief in all kinds of trials. And that is the normal experience of the elect before Christ's return. Normal experiences have grief in all kinds of trials. And at the same time, it's simultaneous grief and simultaneous joy. And it's normal. It's normal for us to have both these things going on. And it's only at Christ's return that the grief will end and the joy will continue. Because there's no grief after his return. But until then, we've got them both. We need to wrestle with this and reckon with this fact. And this is part of the sanctifying work of the Spirit that we heard back about there in verse 2. And verse 7 explains it very clearly for us here that the trials that bring us grief, these trials that seem so random, trials that we despise and want to run from, but these are that sanctifying work of the Spirit. They're not random occurrences of difficulty that just randomly hit us or afflict us. No, no. These are the things that are skillfully applied by the loving tender hand of God to the members of his family, the elect. And he does this because this is productive suffering. It's suffering, yes, but this is not suffering for suffering's sake. This is productive suffering, productive so that we would be refined and our faith would be improved and would grow to be of greater worth than gold. Greater worth than the most valuable things we can imagine, like gold. Can you imagine a faith of greater worth than, than a worldly possession, like as much gold as you can imagine? Well, that's what God's hand in trials does. You see, gold perishes even while it's been refined in a fiery trial. It perishes, it reduces. But faith, oh wow, faith does the opposite. Faith does the precise opposite. Faith increases by trials and refinement in the same way that muscles grow by being tested. You want to grow some muscles? Well, go pump some weights. Go for a jog, do the things that will grow the muscles. And it's by that trial, by that pushing, by that testing that actually grows the muscles. Well, so too it is with faith. Faith is the, is the opposite of something like gold. The faith grows through trials and it then carries the elect all the way home to heaven where praise and glory and honour awaits all believers when Jesus Christ is revealed. When he says, well done, good and faithful servant. He says to those 
Such words reserved for those who keep the faith in all circumstances and allow those circumstances to grow their faith. And while refinement is painful, because it is, it is painful. We're not suggesting it's not. But it supplies something wonderful at the same time, along the way. Not just the building of our faith, but look at verses 8 and 9. See, through him, though, sorry, though you've not yet seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Even in trials, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How can that be true, this simultaneous joy and grief? It's been the whole way through this passage, but it's true. It's true, certainly, as the normal experience of the Christian, the normal experience of the elect. I know I've seen it. I've seen it in the grieving Christian widow. In those worst and darkest moments. I've seen it in the Christian dying of cancer, knowing their death is near. But joy, inexpressible joy. And it's been witnessed and written about across history in the Christian martyrs as their lives are stolen, are taken from them. Their joy It's mostly inexpressible and not understandable to those around it, but it's there. It's there to be witnessed. Charles Simeon, Charles Simeon, an Anglican preacher of great renown, he died in 1836. We've got we owe a lot to Charles Simeon. He's the guy who arranged for Richard Johnson to be the chaplain to the First Fleet, who brought the Bible to Australia. Simeon is the one who set that up, along with many other great things that he did. Now, after a torturous, torturous life as a minister in Cambridge in England, uh, he was famous for his thoughts. And as he was breathing his last on his deathbed, a close friend came up and asked him, Brother Simeon, what are you thinking now? The poor guy's dying, for goodness sake. What are you thinking about? He replied, I'm not thinking now. I'm enjoying I'm enjoying that moment that vast majority of the people of the world fear, that moment of death, he's enjoying. How's that even possible? How can you be enjoying this? Well, it's an experience that is only possible for the Christian who remembers that the trial of death is the last kilometre. It's that last straight before crossing the tape and falling into the arms of God. It's the last few metres. It's that last moment on the way to victory. That's why it's enjoyable. The pain of a long journey about to come to glory. The finish line. Now for Simeon, as it can be for all the elect in that moment filled with an inexpressible and a glorious joy, not because of death, but because he was receiving the goal of his faith at last, salvation of his soul. Now, if you're here tonight, if you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, then I expect this testimony makes no sense to you whatsoever. 
How could it? I understand that I was once an unbeliever too. And things like this, you know, dead to the things of the world and deaf to any explanation of suffering that did not include blame and a cure. You want to talk about suffering when I was not a Christian? Let's talk about blame. Let's talk about a cure. And it better be a quick one. However, that you're here tonight for this, and it just may be that God has chosen this day and these words to open your ears and give you life by his spirit. Now, I certainly didn't know I was the elect until God opened my eyes with an explanation of the gospel regarding suffering and such things. So I make no assumptions about you. But I want to address you now. I preach to you now. Specifically, friend, no other worldview, no other system of belief, no religion, no activity can make sense of our human experience like Jesus does. Nothing else does. None other can give you a coherent hope for now and for the future based on the evidence of a real physical resurrection from the dead. And not just for Jesus, but for all who trust him. Only belief in Christ delivers hope and joy in the face of deep suffering. We say that again, only faith in Jesus delivers hope and joy in the face of deep suffering. Is that what you need? Then come to him. Put your trust in him. I urge you, put your hope in him and you too will begin to know joy even in grief. Because the grief won't go. Every Christian will experience many trials, many trials on the way home. But you too can be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy all along the way, receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. And that's not all he gives us. See, purpose and joy in suffering, it's, it's not the only privilege that the elect experience now before Christ's return, because there's a greater privilege that Peter speaks of here in verses 10 to 12. You, you will have noticed, as Mel read it out, that he shows us here how all human history hinges on the first and second coming of Christ. And we live in between those times. And now in between those times, Peter speaks here of our privileged position, our privileged position before prophets and angels. You see, for the Christian... There is no reason to envy Moses who got to speak to God face to face. And there's no reason to envy the guidance and confidence that God gave to Gideon. And there's, there's no reason whatsoever to envy the insights of Isaiah or the intimacy that David enjoyed with God. Oh no, no need to envy them because it's entirely the other way around. You see, the prophets of old, we're told here, they knew they had the Spirit of Christ working powerfully in them. But they didn't know to whom it pointed and when Jesus would be revealed and the glories that would follow would begin, the glories that you and I now enjoy. They wanted to know, they wanted to be a part of it, but they weren't. Instead, it was revealed to them that they were merely servants of us who have believed and live on this side of the cross of Christ. Friends, we are the privileged ones. We are. And as for the angels, oh, don't bother you envying them they envy us they long to look into what we take for granted the angels 
watch the elect of God with rapt attention to see the glories of God play out in our little lives. How privileged we are. How privileged. The prophets served us and the angels are our spectators. That's our privilege. There's no place for self-pity in the Christian life when our salvation identity is just that good. Back when, I was, back when I was studying for the ministry, I worked part-time in a butcher shop for a couple of years. Anyone ever worked in a butcher shop? All right. Good for you. A, a little? Yeah. Oh, Superman. Yeah, they can be nasty. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I won't go there. Well, the, the owner of a shop was called Mal. And every now and again, it was a shop in, in Kirawee. And every now and again, Mal would draw me out of the torturous cool room in, and introduce me to a customer. He'd come in and say, Michael, Michael. Yes? <laughs> Michael, come out. I want you to meet someone. Oh, okay. And he was so excited. The first time this happened, I thought there must be something, you know, a great celebrity in the shop. And I thought, like, oh, yeah, this will be good, you know. Warm for a moment and fantastic. Going to meet someone interesting. Well, Mal was dragging me out to meet a dear elderly lady who was all bent over in obvious pain with torturously twisted fingers, but who had a face full of radiant joy. And Mal said, Betty, Betty, I want you to meet Michael. He's on our journey too. That's all he said. And that's all that was needed. And our eyes met. And I understood. And so did she. Here, here, here was a precious fellow sister in Christ. One of God's elect, an exile in the world, who'd been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus and would soon, very soon, receive her salvation here. And so she was in the last kilometre, she was in the last few metres. And she was suffering grief in all kinds of trials, but through those her faith was refined and she had grown and she reveled in her identity as an elect exile of God in the world, soon to not be in the world. Even the angels marvel at such a work as she. And I did too. What a privilege. Not just some old lady in a butcher shop. No, Betty was on our journey home to salvation, our salvation inheritance through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Is that your journey? What a privilege. And like all believers should be, Betty's mind was alert and fully sober. Unlike the Smith family who forgot, Betty had, verse 13, a living hope set on the grace to be revealed at Jesus' coming. And while she knew she wasn't there yet, like all alert and sober-minded Christians, she was no longer confused about who she was or where she fit or what she was supposed to do, no longer trapped in the moment and her pain and her experience and the difficulties that she was currently experiencing, no longer stuck there because she had set her hope 
on the grace to be revealed at Jesus' coming. But what of us? What of us here tonight? Where is our hope set? Christians, elect, let's not get stuck in the moment like all the poor people around us, like the Smith family, mourning for their bus. But let's rather like Peter, like Betty, like Simeon, with minds that are alert and fully sober, let us set our hope on the grace to be revealed at Jesus' coming. Knowing that our inheritance awaits, that our identity is secure, that our faith is being refined and built up through all trials whilst we wait, and that our privilege is real. And may grace and peace be yours in abundance for that journey. Amen.